You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks of the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear Katie Balls' thoughts on the importance of Keir Starmer's performance this weekend at the Labour Party conference, Nicola Christie on the exciting new wave of British musical theatre, and finally, Hannah Tomes talking about why Facebook won't let her post about the English waterway, Cockshoot Dyke. First up, Katie Balls. Next week, when Keir Starmer appears on stage at Labour Conference in Brighton, it will be the first time he has spoken to a packed crowd of party members since he became leader. COVID restrictions meant that his inaugural leadership speech at party conference in September 2020 was delivered to an empty hall and shared via a video link. It was a blessing in disguise. Starmer had an excuse for failing to make much of an impression. He was also able to deliver criticism of the Jeremy Corbyn era without fear of booze from the delegates. His audience will be less forgiving now. Over the past year, his position as Labour leader has weakened. Disappointing local election results, a botched shadow cabinet reshuffle and Starmer's sliding popularity in the polls have led to speculation about his ability to lead the party to power. The hope was that Starmer would be more moderate than Corbyn and therefore more electable. Yet few believe he is on course for Downing Street. Is Starmer too robotic to appeal to the public? And if he can get the attention of voters, does he have anything to say to them? It's not uncommon to hear members of the Shadow Cabinet say that it will take two more elections for Labour to get into government. A party shooting for victory in 2029 is unlikely to have high morale. The left flank of the party are on the offensive, crying betrayal over Starmer's refusal to restore the whip to Corbyn following his suspension last year. Starmer's deputy, Angela Rayner, is being talked up as a leadership rival. Even Starmer's own supporters are strained in their praise. Ask a Labour MP how he is doing and you'll often hear he is doing his best, it's a tough job or the most damning. We'll just have to wait and see. He's gone from being a potential Prime Minister to a lame duck leader, says one MP. Inside Starmer's office there is optimism that he can use the conference to reset. Aides hope it will be a turning the page moment. While party conferences rarely change public opinion overnight, they can offer political leaders a chance to set out their vision to a captive audience. The leader's speech is being finalised, conference motions to professionalise the party are being planned, and a dissertation-length essay to set out the principles behind Starmer's vision is being published this week. We want to move on, not just from navel-gazing, but also from talking about how we need to stop navel-gazing, says the party figure. For all the talk of moving beyond party infighting, Starmer isn't shying away from conflict. This weekend, he'll attempt to push for a range of measures set to rile the party's left, the most controversial is planned to reverse the rule changes made under Ed Miliband regarding how the Labour Party leader is picked. This will dismantle the system that allowed left-wing activists and some Tory saboteurs to join Labour for £3 in 2015 and vote in Corbyn as leader. Starmer's allies argue that it is dangerous to leave the party open to infiltration. The plan has, unsurprisingly, appalled MPs on the left of the party and several unions who suggest it is an affront to democracy. 
Starmer's team have braced for more difficult scenes on the conference floor as they put through recommendations on tackling anti-Semitism to votes. Some activists think that Starmer's favoured plan, recommended by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, could be used as a pretext to purge more members of the party's left. A counter-attack is underway to thwart the selection of Starmer's preferred pick for General Secretary, David Evans. So, conflict is inevitable, but is it necessary? Starmer's supporters say the fights are worth having, even if not every single one is won. Internal polling has suggested that voters see Starmer as a break from Corbynism, but they are not yet sure if Labour has changed. Starmer hopes by picking these battles, he will show the party is prepared to change. The drama could echo Neil Kinnock's confrontation of Militant in 1985. The risk to the strategy, of course, is that Labour walls would give more attention to the most radical activists. Should Starmer win the battle for his party, he still needs something to say. He can be clear about what he opposes, but what is he for? Shadow cabinet members complain that there is no flagship policy or overarching theme to rally round. Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda, mocked as meaningless by many Tories, is viewed with envy by Labour. It's a new take-back control. We underestimate it at our risk, says one MP. It's telling how little Tories talk about Starmer these days. His name rarely comes up in government discussions about strategy or debates among Conservative MPs. I've just no idea what's going on with Labour, says one minister. The pre-conference essay, titled The Road Ahead, is supposed to define Starmerism. At 12,000 words, it doesn't exactly scream mass market. But the hope is that it will provide a framework for Starmer as he makes more interventions in the lead-up to the next general election. One person privy to the essay says it will advocate a return to meat and potatoes political issues that resonate across the country. Starmer will try to shed the idea that the Labour Party is anti-business and paint the Tories as the real enemy of business and jobs. There will also be attempts to show what kind of a person Starmer is in his leader's speech. He has been described as dull and unable to connect with the public, a contrast to larger-than-life Johnson. Starmer's allies point to his legal career, where he had to adopt a professional neutral demeanour in the workplace. But in recent appearances on Piers Morgan's Life Stories and Desert Island Discs, he has been more comfortable about letting his guard down. It's not natural to him to talk about himself, but he's going to, says an ally. The conference offers Starmer a chance to inject some energy back into his leadership. He needs to take it. Otherwise, his MPs may conclude that the leader has missed his chance and is now set to be defined by events out of his control. That was Katie Balls. Next we have Nicola Christie. What do Henry VIII's wives, a Rastafarian musical icon and a drag queen, have in common? They're all the subjects of new stage shows that are heralding a golden age of the British musical. Let's start with the court of Henry VIII. A pair of friends at Cambridge University, Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss, decided to write their own musical four years ago because the Student Theatre Society couldn't afford to pay the royalties for an existing one. They based it on the life stories of the six women who were unfortunate enough to marry Henry VIII. Six, as his debut effort came to be known, opens on Broadway this week with huge advanced ticket sales already achieved. There are various reasons for Six's cataclysmic flight to fame. It's the ultimate feminist power piece, six women writing their wrongs, a natural product of the Me Too movement, though it was penned before Me Too. 
The story is delivered not unlike Hamilton's use of hip-hop through street-sharp lyrics and patter that dazzle. And the production had a meticulously calculated route to the West End. The journey on which you take your show is as important as what you write on the page, explains Six producer Kenny Wax. You can write a work of wonder, but if you choose the wrong journey for that show, it won't necessarily work. Having seen Six as a student show in Cambridge, we decided to book it at London's Arts Theatre for four Monday nights in a row to test it out. It could have been an absolute catastrophe. We spent £350,000 to get it on and £50,000 a week to run, so it's a huge gamble. It paid off. And the next step was a run at a regional theatre, Norwich Playhouse. Then we took it to the Edinburgh Festival to get international bookers in and young people. A hit again, so then there was a recording of a studio album. We got 250 million streams. It's second in musicals only to Hamilton. That's extraordinary for a show that had not even opened in the West End or on Broadway. When we did open in the West End, I decided not to hold a press night. Six was never going to meet with the approval of critics. It's a pop musical with no narrative. I just left things to social media. It's a 21st century success story and has only been kicked out of court at the Lyric Theatre because a new musical about the life of Bob Marley, Get Up, Stand Up, has moved in. Six is now at the vaudeville. Though the term jukebox musical has negative connotations, perhaps, Get Up, Stand Up, due to open next month, is a very exciting proposition indeed. There's a cast of 24. We've a band who've got the sound of Bob and the Wailers right down. The I-3s, you know, the backing singers, but much more, will make you melt. Clint Dyer, recently appointed as the National Theatre's Deputy Artistic Director, is directing the production. I ask if this is one of the first all-black British musicals, perhaps twinned with another jukebox musical about the Drifters, which is opening down the road at the Garrick. It's not all black. He pauses. It's mainly black. And yes, it's a very big thing, perhaps because it's speaking to a black British experience, even though a lot of it is set in Jamaica, as opposed to the more usually presented black American experience. Billy Elliot writer Lee Hall has woven Bob Marley's songs into the story of Marley's life when he fled Jamaica for London, having been shot during the Civil War. It's an emotional roller coaster of a story, Dyer says. Some of Bob's most famous songs were written and recorded during this time, jamming, one love, waiting in vain. The acclaimed writer, director and actor Aaron Zay Kenne has been cast as Marley. He's got the essence of Bob down, his humility. When you listen to him singing these songs, Bob had the ability to harness in a lyric the fragility of man and the need for acceptance. The songs are so meaningful. There's an intellectualism and emotionalism to them. You know, I grew up with him. I'm a black British man of Jamaican descent and he was such an influential person to me. He contributed so much to my understanding of the world and how I can move in it without feeling traumatised. He gave me a self-confidence to exist in Britain. He gave that to a lot of poor people, a morality that we had to meet to feel whole. 
Where has this resurgence in the British musical come from? I talked to Neil Marcus, who for many years ran Mercury Musical Developments, an organisation set up in 1992 by Cameron McIntosh and Stephen Sondheim to nurture new musical theatre writers in the UK. Historically, Britain was a place of Shakespeare and new plays. America was a place of musicals. While new playwriting was always well-funded here, think about the Royal Court or Soho Theatre, musicals were not. In 2009, along with Andy and Wendy Barnes of musical writing organisation Perfect Pitch, who also co-produced Six, Marcus went to the Arts Council to ask them to put money into their organisations. They did. It's allowed perceptions to shift and musical writing prizes and festivals like Signal and Beam to proliferate. It's rare that a show created somewhere like this makes it to the West End, explains Marcus. But what it does is allow makers to improve their craft. The past 10 years have seen an exponential growth in the UK in the musical writing community. And we're seeing now the fruits of a decade of investment in new musical writing. A musical that's the product of this momentum is 2017's Everybody's Talking About Jamie, now showing at a cinema near you in a new film adaptation. The real-life story of a 16-year-old northern boy who realises his dream to become a drag queen against all odds the show started life at the Sheffield Crucible. I saw a documentary about this boy and I knew it would make a great story, says the film's director, Jonathan Butterell, who also directed the theatre production and originated the project. It's such a lovely, gentle tale about a young person's courage. It's universal. It certainly is. The theatre production has been booked into Los Angeles, Sydney, Seoul and Tokyo. It's also still a very timely story, packed with questions exploring identity, such as why can't a boy wear a dress to a prom, and why should a girl in a hijab, Jamie's best friend, Pretty, have to wear makeup to be considered beautiful? Everybody's talking about Jamie is a sort of niche project that could never have started life in the West End. It needed a regional theatre to give it the time and space to be developed. It took courage for Sheffield theatres to take it on, Bertrell admits. They took a huge financial risk. Risk-taking is in the DNA of many British theatres. Leicester Curve, Stratford East, Northampton Theatres, Southwark Playhouse, not to mention the RSC, which produced Matilda and before that Les Miserables, and The National, which produced the brilliant London Road and some years earlier, Jerry Springer, The Opera, developed at Battersea Arts Centre. It's a more vibrant musical scene than it's ever been before and there is no guessing which venue is going to come up with the hit, says Marcus. It could be the Almeida, the Royal Court... And so a new musical history is being written for Britain. Finally, something for the theatre industry to cheer about. That was Nicola Christie. And finally, Hannah Tomes. Last week, a gentle Norfolk waterway got into trouble with Facebook. The problem was its name, Cockshoot Dyke. 
Facebook's relentless algorithms blocked posts that mentioned the dike and issued notifications warning about sexual content and violence. But the name of this stretch of water isn't, of course, actually rude at all. It relates to a fowl hunting term for a broad glade through which woodcock might fly. The joy of supposedly rude place names lies in their innocence. The village of Upperthong, near Huddersfield, is named after the old English words Uffera, Upper, and Thwang, a narrow strip of land, while Twat in Orkney comes from the Old Norse Pveit, meaning small piece of land. I've always felt some affinity for places with unusual names. I grew up in a tiny Shropshire village called Clunton, one letter from trouble. People would often ask me to repeat myself when I told them where I lived, thinking maybe they'd misheard me. Residents of the nearby, charmingly named Hopton Wafers never suffered such embarrassment, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Only a Puritan, or a Facebook algorithm, wouldn't snigger at Pet Bottom, Ugly, Titty Ho, Low Cock How, or Wet Wang. Last month, a man called Paul Taylor set off on a 1,800-mile moped journey across England and Scotland, visiting the places with the rudest names to raise money in memory of a friend of his who died of cancer. He started his journey in Shitterton, a hamlet near Beer Regis in Dorset, and set off for Twat, taking in places such as Brawl in Scotland, Sandy Ball's Holiday Village in Hampshire, and ending at the village of Bellend in Worcestershire. After reaching Twat, Mr Taylor's Tomos XL45 Classic, with a top speed of 28 miles an hour, suffered engine failure on a remote mountain pass, but he completed the journey in a hire car, adding in a few extra stops. In the case of some of these place names, the etymology is up for debate. The village of Pity Me near Durham is said to have got its name after St Cuthbert's coffin was dropped by the monks carrying it, prompting the saint to scold them with the phrase beyond the grave. Other theories suggest it may be a shortened version of Norman French name Pity Mare, referring to a shallow lake or mere, or perhaps it's just a play on the settlement's desolate character. Booze, a hamlet in North Yorkshire that ironically hasn't got a pub, is thought to come from the old English words for house, hus, and bow, bogger, meaning the house by the bow which is possibly a reference to the curved hill on which it's situated. Wetwang either comes from the Old Norse word vanger, field for the trial of legal action, or it derives from a wet field to distinguish it from a nearby dry field at Driffield. But Britain's not alone. Dull in Perth and Kinross is grouped with boring in Oregon and bland in New South Wales, and Hell in Michigan is said to have got his name when George Reeves, who helped to form the town in the 1830s, was asked what it should be called. He apparently replied... I don't know, you can call it hell for all I care, and was taken at his word. And if you get tired of hell, the state also holds a community called Paradise. That was Hannah Tomes. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel, and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.